how am I going to see the clues? Hear them. If you're yabbing. You're a rich girl and you're gone too far cause you're dancing in the moonlight. show that dreamed that they'd be Ben's partner. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, you've, you've already spoiled what we're going out on this week. Woohoo! Who are you? What is Perfect this? Perfect sandwich. Hello, this is Lindsay Tucker. I am a, a journalist and a researcher and the host of this show, and I am here joined today and every week by Aviv Rubenstein. Aviv, oh, hello. Well, yes, it is I, Aviv Rubenstein. Um, I am You're on a, camera. We're on so camera. You can't do weird eyeball rubs like that. I was rubbing my. I had something <laughs> in my eye. Okay, so yes, uh, listeners, big big change for the year 2023. We're back from our brief hiatus, and there are a couple of quick changes to the show. I'll make them brief. We're on video now, so you can see us on YouTube and probably on TikTok whenever we can figure that out. And uh, that's basically it. We share the untold or mistold stories behind famous songs or maybe not so famous songs this is a very famous song and this is my disclaimer this is a song that i had been putting off because the mystery at the center of this song has been solved and is relatively common knowledge except for not to Lindsay for some reason um <laughs> but in my research I found out that if you think this is like this is the teaser if you think that you actually know the answer to this song you're wrong the big reveal that happened about eight years ago is actually only a partial reveal. So, so what? So, so what are we talking about today, Lindsay? <laughs> today we're talking about the song "You're So Vain" by Carly Simon. Yes. So the other thing uh, that I want to say, the other disclaimer is, we got some feedback saying that we didn't delve into the lyrics enough for a show called "Lyrics for Lunch." So this episode, I think is that's an Aviv problem. <laughs> That is so. So Aviv is is remedying that problem. We are going to be doing a very forensic dive into the lyrics of this song this week. Right off the top, let's listen to Your Sylvain. Your Sylvain is a song speculated about for close to forty years. Much like you ought to know, it's the 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 mystery is who is the song, who is the you in the song, and it's been the focus of much theorizing and journalistic prodding. Uh, right off the bat, when I was researching this episode, I didn't realize that this how like kind of bluesy this song was, because I only know the like hook part, I guess, from memory, and sure, so like sure. the the verse is like kind of like groovy saucy. bluesy, saucy. <laughs> Actually, the song is about a beat. It's true. This is this is the this is why we should we should be on video. I know. I'm like, am I gonna have to tame myself now? <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> 
My singing like vocally, no. yes, <laughs> just like a lip sync. <laughs> I was literally just thinking, how oh, should keep that in? <laughs> the wife of a postman is one of my favorite lyrics. That's not the lyric. A close friend, I mean. Close friend, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I said postman. Postman? <laughs> I have no idea why I said that. I knew his fucking close friend. Also, uh, one of the lyrics that ha- has been um, frequently misheard is clowns in my coffee, which is People not- think it's clowns? Yeah, it's not. Clearly clouds. Clearly clouds. <laughs> okay, so let's do a quick rundown of the lyrics. If you couldn't pick it up from Lindsay's singing. <laughs> Son of a gun. That's what she says. Son of yeah. a gun. Yeah. Bam, bam. Okay, I did not know it was Son of a gun. You walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your scarf, it was apricot. You had wow. one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself gavotte. Okay, pause. A gavotte is a term for... <laughs> I had to look it up. It's a dance of French peasant origin marked by the raising rather than sliding of feet. So it's like... Oh! Clip-clopping. Yeah. Okay, I always thought it was like... You had one eye in the mirror, and you kind of, like, watched yourself. Well, I thought it was a cavort <laughs> or something, yeah. Okay, keep going. And all the girls dreamed that they'd be your partner. They'd be your partner. You're so vain. You probably think the song is about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the song is about you, don't you? Don't you? Well, you had me several years ago, and I was still quite naive. When you said that we made such a pretty pair, and that you would never leave. But you gave away the things you loved, and one of them was me. I had some dreams. They were clouds in my coffee. Clouds in my coffee. You're so vain. You probably think the song is about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the song is about you. Don't you? Don't you? Well, I hear you went up to Saratoga, and your horse naturally won, and then you flew me. You flew your Learjet up to Nova Scotia to see a total eclipse of the sun. Well, you're where you should be all the time. And when you're not, you're with some underworld spy or the wife of a close friend, wife of a close friend. You're so vain. You probably think the song is about you, don't you? Don't you? <laughs> okay, so we're gonna we're gonna set out to to figure out who the you in "You're So Vain" is today. James Taylor. So so yesterday you said you thought it was Mick Jagger. And today you say you think it's... Matthew McConaughey. Well, so other than Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> all of your guesses are like in the right ballpark. This is from This Is Dig. 
which is like a music blog and weird it like doesn't sound like it's a reputable source but i corroborated it from a bunch of different other websites so like whatever um carly simon's first effort on this song was called bless you ben baby ben's partner yes so she composed it on she she composed (laughs) it on her aunt's piano and thematically the early pass was very different from your so vain um she was in she did an interview with charlie rose noted not great dude charlie rose in 2000 and she explained the origin of the song quote there was originally a song that had the melody of what is now you're so vain called bless you ben and it went bless you ben you came in where nobody else left off there i was by myself hiding up in my loft and it never went anywhere i could never fall in love with it and then i was at a party at her friend Karen Rosen's house, and somebody walked in, and Karen said to me, doesn't he look like he just walked onto a yacht? So I thought to myself, hmm, let me write that down in my little notebook. This is still Carly. And then one day, I was playing Bless You, Ben, and I substituted, you walked into the party like you were walking onto a yacht, and the exchange was equal. It like felt really natural, felt good. The final Lyrical Foundations were not like an overheard, not something that she overheard, but a genuinely daft piece of cleverness. This is from This Is Dig. She said, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. It just kind of popped into her head. It clicked. She remembered the word vain did it. Suddenly I had a protagonist, a guy. He would think that the song is about him. So Simon changed the title of the song from Bless You Ben to The Ballad of a Vain Man. Oh, a vain man. The Ballad of a Vain Man, which was the name of the demo. Like, they recorded it all the way up, and, like, the acetate label on the recording is called The Ballad of a Vain Man. And then eventually they just changed it to You're So Vain. Well, thank God, because The Ballad of a Vain Man Sucks. is not a good title. And apparently, apparently, it, when they were recording it originally, it was, like, a much slower, folky sort of thing. And the producer, who we'll hear from a little bit later, was like, let's speed it up. Let's make it like a groove track or whatever. I don't know. Um, But in the recording, this is Carly. She says, we had done a hundred takes of the basic track and at least 30 of the lead vocals. This the recording took place in London. And she she told her producer, Richard, we have to stop at 100. I refuse to be part of a record that went beyond 100 takes. It was too expensively <laughs> embarrassing for anyone except for Liberace. Oh, my God. Excellent. <laughs> okay, so this is from Biography.com. The lyrics of the meta song pointedly accuse someone, likely a lover, of being way too into himself. And with Carly Simon's famous lineup of romantic partners, the cocky individual could have pointed to, you ready? Ready. Michael Crichton, David Geffen, Chris Christopherson, Terrence Malick, Warren Beatty, Jack Nicholson, Cat Stevens, James Taylor, John Travolta, or even rumored flings with Sean Connery, which she later denied that she had any romantic interactions with, Marvin Gaye, Jeremy Irons, Mick Jagger... And maybe David Bowie, but it's not David Bowie. So everyone I said was on the list. Yes, except for Matthew McConaughey, which is why I was (laughs) like, Jesus. (laughs) But didn't the whole world think it was Mick Jagger? We'll talk. We'll talk about the options. Okay. We'll we'll talk about. I think you mean Warren Beatty, not Warren Buffett. Beatty. Warren Buffett is a billionaire. 
And really old. And very, well, Beatty's old too. So for decades, Carly kept the secret, right? And then everyone speculated about all these people. Every single one of them, there's there's evidence to support David Geffen, Chris Christopherson, Warren Beatty, Michael Crichton, Terrence Malick, Jack Nicholson, Cat Stevens, James Taylor, John Travolta, Sean Connery, Mick Jagger, Marvin Gaye, David Bowie, right? All of them. In 2003, she told one person. Okay, who was the person? The chairman of NBC Sports, Dick Ebersol. Why did she choose Dick? Because she told, she she auctioned the secret off. Ooh. So he do, so he donated fifty thousand dollars in an auction for Martha's Vineyard's community center, and that the like vineyard is really hurting for dough. Well, I think that that's what she was <laughs> that's what she was raising money for, right? So she auctioned well, it off. Well, her husband or maybe not husband is from Massachusetts, right? Isn't James he Taylor from the Cape or something. You're you're really you're really planting your flag in James Taylor, and it's gonna make you sad in a second. They're not. They never got married. They did get married, but they. I'm not only... saying the songs about him. I'm saying she might have ties to the vineyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has ties to the vineyard for sure. Okay. She's like a vineyard. I mean, like it's Carly Simon. She's like a vineyard lady. Oh, she's a vineyard lady. She's a vineyard lady. You know. So Dick Ebersol donated fifty thousand dollars in an auction for Martha's Vineyards Community Services to earn the rights to the name, but as a uh, stipulation of winning the auction, he could never reveal who it was. To on his dying I guess so. to and his lovers. In addition in addition to that, he won a private performance over a lunch of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and vodka on the rocks. This is according to the LA Times. Was she naked? I fucking hope so. <laughs> and Dick Ebersol was given one clue in advance, which is that the letter E was in the person's name. If he guessed it beforehand, was there more peanut butter and jelly? <laughs> he got her child. <laughs> I don't fucking know. There was an E in the name. Okay. The following year, in 2004, Carly gave up a few more letters. That to she, who? To Regis Philbin. No, to oh, Regis Philbin. So you're close. <laughs> so she told Regis Philbin on the morning show that the letters, that there was an A in the name, and especially for Regis, an R. Mick Jagger. So let's talk about, let's run down the Mick Jagger thing. <laughs> the real smoking gun in the Mick Jagger thing is the line wife of a close friend wife of a postman right I really because don't know why I said that Angie <laughs> Angie Bowie David Bowie's first wife was certain that this referred to her and Mick Jagger Ooh. in a 1993 book Angie claimed to be the wife of the close friend she literally was like she was like I am the wife of the close friend Jagger pretty narcissistic <laughs> she's so vain <laughs> You think there's only one wife of a close friend? But she said that Jagger had been obsessed with Carly Simon for like a long time. But the other huge piece of evidence is that Jagger sings backup vocals on the song. Mm. So bet you think the song is about you, don't you, don't you, of even the future. Drop that back in. You can hear it's it's Mick Jagger. So the way that came about is that Carly Simon started recording the song with Harry Nilsson. Do you know who Harry, Harry Nilsson is? The Lime and the Coconut guy? Oh. Among, like, so many other amazing songs, but, like, his biggest thing is Lime and the Coconut. Jagger ended up taking his place, even though he's not credited on the record. And this, this is how it happened. Carly Simon said, I guess it was kind of chance in a way. I was in London in 1972, 
and Mick Jagger happened to call the studio while I was doing the song. He just rung up the studio to talk to Harry Nelson. Mick said, hey, what you doing? And I said, oh, we're doing some backing vocals for a song of mine. Why don't you come down and sing with us? So Mick and Harry and Carly stood around the mic singing You're So Vain. And, quote, Harry was such a gentleman. He saw the chemistry was between me and Nick in terms of me and Mick in terms of the singing. So he sort of bowed out saying, the two of you have a real blend. You should do it yourselves. But in 1983, Carly said that the song is not about Mick Jagger. They did fall in love, but it was more of a platonic creative love, according to both of them. This is the New York Post. Every time Mick, this is Carly Simon's quote in the New York Post. uh, Every time Mick passed me while I was talking to someone, he looked at me with the same expression. You and I know the same thing. I personally have no idea what it is, and neither do you, but it's the same thing. What? Yeah, I don't know. Nothing happened that night except for a jittery conversation, but sometime after, as she recorded Ballad of a Vain Man, she was around, like, surrounded as she was mixing the album by Paul and Linda McCartney, George Martin, Harry Nilsson, Mick Jagger, and um, she said that she only collaborated with Mick for 45 minutes in the studio. And, quote, Mick is that genius of an artist who thrives on the dark and the daring. And you could say that the love affair between us appeared to be brewing and contained both of those things. They spent some evenings together at the studio where he was recording and some other times in rooms at the Portobello Hotel, which was dangerous and conspicuous. In the end, though, she chose her boyfriend, James Taylor, over her relationship with Mick Jagger. Lame. I know, right? Quote, I was holding back with Mick, not giving him exactly what he wanted, but I knew it was still more than James would be all right with. Mm. And the night before she married James Taylor, Bianca Jagger called James Taylor and said that he shouldn't marry Carly because Carly and Mick were having an affair. But it turns out the affair never really took place. It was just like kind of, they, they had like an, an attraction. affair? Yeah, probably. I mean, probably they made out. They probably did some stuff. They fucked. They, oh, they fucked. <laughs> Would we call it an affair? Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. But the, tr- the true nail in the coffin for this theory that it's about Mick Jagger is that she met Mick Jagger after she wrote the song. Okay. So it's definitely not about him. Uh, okay. So let's okay. move on to, to our next suspect, James Taylor. He was a popular target because he was married to Carly Simon for nine years, including during the release and popularity of You're So Vain. But she quickly didn't, and she, he has an E and an A and an R in his name. But she quickly denied that it was about him during an interview that they both did together with Rolling Stone, which is like kind of fucked up. That they it was 1973. Yeah, maybe. They, they did they did an interview in 1973, right after they got married, right after the song came out. And she's like, it's definitely not about James. Yeah. This is the quote to, with to Rolling Stone. It's definitely not about James, although James suspected that it might be about him because he is very vain. <laughs> but there was a clear, very direct clue in the line, you flew me in your Learjet up to Nova Scotia. No. You flew your Learjet. Yeah, you flew your Learjet up to Nova Scotia. Carly explained 
that he had the unfortunate experience of taking a jet up to Nova Scotia after I had written the song, after I had written the song, but he was saved by the fact that it wasn't a Learjet. Okay. Yeah, right? The Learjet thing also exonerates Chris Christofferson, who was uh, one of the other very, like, oh, it's definitely him subjects. Subjects Please of pause. speculation. As a songwriter, I'm you are yeah. a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Is every single no. thing no. autobiographical? No. Like, if it's a jet, it's a jet. If Lear fits in, good, great. Right. So I think, I mean, I think that, like, things are autobiographical and people are taking this, like, very extremely, like, like biblical literalism, like, you know, the, a snake came up and talked to Adam and Eve sort of thing. <laughs> but um, Wait, what? That didn't happen? That didn't happen. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, she is definitely playing into the fact that Every single word is the word, right? But no, clearly not. Like, like as a songwriter, no, you don't fucking... You got to couch it in some sort of mystery. Yeah. Um, Chris Christopherson was also exonerated by the Learjet thing, though. This is from Genius. So Carly was the opening act for Chris Christopherson um, in May of 1970. So timeline checks out. And... He Chris Christopherson denies being the guy because he was a licensed helicopter pilot, but quote, it couldn't have been me because I've never flown a, in a Learjet like the guy in the song. Sorry, no. Yeah, you don't buy it. <laughs> no. In two thousand five, Carly Simon's other ex husband Jim Hart said that he was sure that the song was not about anyone famous. So Sheila Weller wrote a book in 2008 called Girls Like Us, and it includes an account of Carly Simon's love affair with this dude named Dan Armstrong, who's a musician. And Sheila ponders that maybe Dan Armstrong was the inspiration for the song. Armstrong's full name is Daniel Kent Armstrong, and the Kent is that missing E. It contains like all three letters of Carly Simon's clue. So in 2009... There's a break in the case because Carly re-recorded the song and included included new clues. Really? Yeah. So let's take a listen to the 2009 version of You're So So in 2010, Carly got a little bit more detailed in an interview with a British magazine called Uncut. And she said, I'm just going to tell you this. The answer is on the new version of You're So Vain. There's a little whisper, and the whisper is the answer to the puzzle. That whisper is about three minutes, two and a half minutes into the song. Okay, here we go. Ready? was robert you thought it was robert yeah okay so people the washington post thinks it's david right robert i listened to it a bunch it sounded more davidy yesterday than today what'd you hear today well i'll tell you oh you already know yeah multiple media outlets speculated that the subject was david geffen who was the executive at electra records david geffen is a weirdly like appears on the show a lot we talk about it like every yeah. time but Jim Hart, Carly's ex-husband, 
denied that it was Geffen. Why are we letting a man speak for a woman? Because she's not speaking. (laughs) So what? But Carly herself said that when she wrote the song in 1971, she hadn't met David Geffen yet. And Carly Simon's publicist also confirmed that the song was not about Geffen. But there was indeed a David who was connected with the song in some way, shape, or form. She said that. That's what the publicist said. That's what her publicist said. Yes. There there is a David that's connected. A David who is connected to the song in some way, shape, or form. Okay. Vanity Fair noted that in addition to David, you could just hear the name Warren later (laughs) whispered in the song. You could? Yeah. I couldn't find it, though. But that's what Vanity Fair said. So this is Vanity Fair in 2010. During a recent interview, Carly mentioned that the answer to the question lies in the tr- in a track on her new album called Never Been Gone, which set off a firestorm of rumors that the subject was definitively record executive David Geffen, and that the reason that she felt hurt by him was because he favored Joni Mitchell over her. Now, did he? I don't. I don't know. But there was definitely a competition between the two of them, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But the speculation had been quelled uh, that it wasn't David Geffen, but there was still an unanswered question. So I, the writer of this article, set out to work. I emailed Carly Simon. (laughs) But she was on her way to London to promote the British debut of the album. So her automatic reply was, I will be away from my email till March 12th, which I don't think there's a clue in that. No. I called her friend. And webmaster, this is an article from 2010, so we still use the term webmaster. I called her friend and webmaster, Jody Wright, who reminded me that Hotcakes, which is the album released close to the same time as Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark came out, which was 1974, and You're So Vain was written in 72, so while Carly was eventually upset about Geffen's favoritism for Joni, her miffed feelings didn't happen until, like, 1974-ish, so it couldn't have been him in the song. So, like, timeline doesn't work out. Womp womp. Womp womp. And then Jody said something else, which was interesting. Quote, why does everyone assume it was about a famous man? It's about a woman. Maybe. So uh, then this writer talked to Jim Hart, who is Carly's ex-husband. They were married for 20 years. And Jim had no idea that the rumor had even started. Quote, Geffen, he said. That guy? Yeah, right. I left several messages with with several of Carly's close friends and associates. Her publicist called me back and said, Carly did recite backward. This is the quote. Carly did recite backward the name David in the new version. That was the Robert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, it was David backwards. That's that's what you heard, right? Divad? Div, div, divad? Yeah. Carly <sighs> did, so Elise Kingsley, the publicist, said Carly did recite backward the name David in the new version of You're So Vain. This is stupid. <laughs> this is just like making me like the song less. What is these shenanigans? Just fucking tell us who it is. Me or or Carly? Her. (laughs) Or don't. But stop putting secret backwards messages in your washed up song. Oh, dude. It gets so much worse for you in a second. Okay. Jim Hart then emailed her back and said, so he said, I called Carly 
and couldn't get through and sent her an email and got an automatic reply. And I'm 99% positive that the story about Geffen is not accurate. I would be 100% sure if it wasn't for my dementia. Carly said that? No, no, no. Um, Jim said that about Carly. Another close friend of Carly's called this journalist back and said the person had a possible idea about the David. This person is a very reliable source but didn't want to go on the record, and the person revealed the following tidbits. There was a famous secret club that a male close to Carly all of her life founded, a club for men who, like the founder himself, were exceptionally well-endowed and who welcomed photographic confirmation of the same. One member of this club was named David with a common Jewish last name, was in film, by coastal involved in liberal trendy politics po- political causes in the 70s his career and life intersected with hers in some definite ways and she knew the size of his organ the she the person this like anonymous source let's unpack this for a second please hold on yeah there's more clues an anonymous source said uh-huh. who's close to carly dick club there's big a big dick, dick club, club. mm mm-hmm. mhm Carly was active there. Or like knew knew that this guy was active there at least. And me, the anonymous source, knows he has a big dick. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's him. I think it's and and knows knows he he's got a common Jewish last name, was in film by What Coastal. does common Jewish last name have to do with anything? It's just like a clue. Oh, okay. Like David Goldfarb or whatever. Um, and this David currently resides in the very place where Carly grew up, which is New York. And he has a daughter whose name sounds an awful lot like Carly. Marley? So. Around the same time, Carly went on the Howard Stern show. And Howard Stern claims that Carly told him who the song is about, but he forgot. That's not true. I know. As Stern tells it. Carly Simon appeared on a show with Ben Taylor, who is her son with James Taylor. Carly and Ben had an agreement not to talk about James Taylor, which is clearly a source of tension. Howard was able to open up a dialogue about the subject of James Taylor, and Carly Simon was so grateful that she whispered the name of the mysterious You're So Vain man into Howard Stern's ear. But also on the show, she clarified that she didn't say David. She didn't say David backwards while burning a candle? No, apparently, according to Carly Simon, she said Ovid. Why would she say Ovid? Quote, I said Ovid both front and backward together on the CD, and it came out sounding like David to some, I guess. She later clarified she was referencing the ancient Roman poet whose best known work is Metamorphosis, and it describes a character who undergoes various transformations. No. Um, so, by the way, Warren Beatty's daughters are named Isabel and Ella. Neither of those sound like Carly. David Geffen has no children. But Chris Christopherson's daughters are named Kelly, Tracy, and Casey. Is that a Jewish last name? No, certainly not. Does he have a big dick? I, I, haven't, seen, I haven't seen Chris Christopherson's dick lately. <laughs> but... I would assume so. You think a trunk? Probably. He's kind of older. All right. (laughs) So Carly proceeded through life teasing and dropping hints, but keeping the identity of the arrogant subject to herself. 
And then in 2015, she was promoting a memoir called Boys and Trees, and she used the secret as an as ammunition for publicity. She's just trying to keep herself relevant, and it's annoying. Yes. Well, <laughs> quote Carly, it was my book publisher who called me up and said, "People Magazine will put you on the cover if you tell if you tell who you're so vain is about." And I was so desperate, I went along with the dog and pony show. So in 2015, we finally have an answer this morning to one of music's big mysteries. Carly Simon revealed to People Magazine she was singing about, wait for it, Warren Beatty in her 1972 hit, You're So Vain. The mystery of the man behind the song has puzzled okay, fans for decades. So Warren Beatty, right? Everyone knows now. People have been screaming at their, at their phones or whatever. Everyone knows it's Warren Beatty. So I want to do a quick digression into Warren Beatty. <laughs> This this episode was inspired by um, the podcast You Must Remember This, hosted by Karina Longworth, who did like a Warren Beatty episode, and I was, it's wild. So I know Warren Beatty is like an old man. Sure. But he wasn't always an old man. Are you sure? I am sure. This is how this is how time works. <laughs> well, there's some people who are like old forever. Like Steve Martin has been old forever. Not not so with Warren Beatty. So Carly Simon dated Warren Beatty, and she told the Washington Post in 1983, hasn't everybody? <laughs> At the time I met him, he was still relatively undiscovered as a Don Juan, and I felt I was one among thousands at that point. It hadn't reached, you know, the populations of small countries. Wow. So the first time she met Warren Beatty, she was on tour opening for Cat Stevens, and he visited her backstage. This is from the New York Post. This is the account of how Warren seduced Carly Simon. This is where it gets bad for everyone. Everyone. Great. So this is, this is Carly's quote. As he saw there was no one else around, he closed the door. He got very close to me, looked into my face, looked down at my breasts, braless, and curved, Bravely in an insulating shape under my sham chamoise can't chamoise shirt, he said, "Can I see you?" Carly was left speech speechless. What a glorious specimen of a man! Ah. He put them all to shame. If looks and charm were what you were after, he honed he homed in on them like a tracking dog. I don't know what that means. Beatty kept a list he referred to as the main loves of his life. It worked, and it shouldn't have. It was irresistible, she says of Beatty's process. Hold on, hold on. He, like, yeah. takes it out. Uh-huh. Here's my list. The yes. main loves of my life. Uh-huh. Number one, my cat. No. Number two, my mom. Uh-uh. Number three, you. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> Warren's list was there on a piece of white paper in his pocket so he could take it out and show you. And when he showed me, he added my name to make me the main one at the top so I could see that I was right up there above women like Catherine the Great, Marie Curie, Mar- Maria Tallchief, and Lillian Hellman, who was like a Broadway writer. <laughs> About a month into the romance with Warren, Carly got a call from him saying that he was flying to New York from L.A. and absolutely had to see her. He'd be getting in at around 12.30 in the morning and would have to be gone by 5.30 in the morning for an early morning shoot. He arrived and the couple, quote, made love like in a movie. Warren was such a professional, the pressure, quote, 
I hate this. Warren was such a professional. The At pressure points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the pressure points he knew about stirred a tremor in me. This is this is from the book Boys in the Trees. Warren seemed to have created a brand new manual on how to make love. Did he write it down? Did I he hope send so. Send it out. Yeah, just share it. <laughs> yeah. It's in the back of the book. After he left, Carly slept and then went for an appointment with her longtime therapist, who she refers to as Doctor L. So she was raving to Doctor L about her night and what a Superman Warren Beatty is in the sack when she saw quote Doctor L looked unwell. And Carly's like, L was doing baby too. No, oh. Carly Simon asked what's wrong, and Doctor L, was a man, who was a man, said, oh. <laughs> "Under the circumstances, I can't withhold this. It's too much to believe. You are not the first patient of the day who spent the night with Warren Beatty last night. Whoa! It was eleven in the morning. Whoa! Apparently, Warren Beatty was such a famous coxman." That one of his biographers, that's my word, (laughs) one of his biographers, Peter Biskind, estimated in 2010 that Warren Beatty has slept with 12,775 women. How do you do that estimation? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) So Biskind writes in his book, and the book is called Star, How Warren Beatty Seduced America. He arrived at that figure by simple arithmetic. He appears to have worked out the number of days between Warren Beatty losing his virginity at 19 and the date in 1991 when he meets Annette Benning, who eventually becomes his wife. Oh, because that stopped him. And applied the questionable logic that during that entire period, Beatty slept with an average of one woman a day. No one's believing that. Yeah. This kind is an accomplished writer, by the way. He he wrote a really famous film book called Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. Um, and so he adds for the perp for these purposes, he ruled out daytime quickies, drive bys, casual gropings and stolen kisses. He ruled those out. He ruled those out. Those are out. Why? I don't know. This exercise, this is from The Guardian. This exercise may not gain this kind honorary membership of the Academy of Arts and Sciences, but it has generated considerable publicity, right? So it's just a publicity stunt. An account in the New York Post headlined, Sexy Tell-All Jumps into Beatty's Bed, bills the book as an authorized biography. However, even the publisher makes no reference to Beatty having cooperated with the author. Although there are direct quotes from Beatty in the book. So who's to say? Warren Beatty's lawyer told the Huffington Post that the book was tedious and not authorized by Mr. Beatty, and he included he accused Biskind of writing many false assertions and of quoting Beatty saying things he never said. So um, there will be some quotes, some Beatty quotes from Biskind's book that may or may not be real, but I mean, this guy isn't like a fly-by-night guy. He's written a lot of famous film books, so like I'm mm-hmm. inclined to to believe some stuff that is in here. So according to the Post's account, such quotations include Beatty telling Biskind of Jane Fonda, who apparently initially thought that Beatty was gay, and then said, oh my God, we kissed until we had practically eaten each other's heads off. Okay. So this is from Groovy History. Groovy History made a list of all of the famous people that, Warren Beatty is rumored to have slept with. So we're going to run through them as fast as we can because there are a lot of them. 
He slept with women much younger than him and much older than him. He slept with newscasters. And though it strains belief in one man's virality, it's allegedly that he slept with a sitting first lady and a member of the British royal family. He probably did. I, I kind of I kind of believe it. But though Groovy History says, there's little doubt that Beatty was a Hollywood's most accomplished Lothario, but there has to be, on some level of exaggeration here, he could not possibly have slept with all of these women, or could he? Let's, let's run through them. Jane okay. Fonda, after, yeah. a, after a screen test. Joan Collins, starting in 1960, Bar- Beatty was hot and heavy with Joan Collins, who was a much more established actress. Before her... His relationships were very low profile, and this relationship was serious. She got pregnant. They were engaged, but she ended up getting an abortion, and then their relationship fell apart. Natalie Wood. Beatty allegedly drove Natalie Wood mad with stunts like hitting on her 16-year-old sister and abandoning her at restaurants to go run off with the hat check girl. But they uh, dated on again, off again for two years until she left him for good. She drowned? She did drown. It wasn't Beatty. Um, Cher, who was 16 at the time, and Beatty was 25. Uh, Yeah. mm. One night, while passing Schwab's drugstore, Cher was run down by a white Lincoln convertible. She was, like, in, I guess, in the crosswalk, and, and the Lincoln, like, almost hit her. She screamed, are you nuts, at the driver, and then she looked at his face and thought, oh, my God, it's Warren Beatty. Who had his nuts out and just stuck him to the window. Oh, my God. You're nuts. (laughs) Um, Cher and Beatty started dating, but you can't really call it in a relationship, Cher says. It was very Warren. Cher didn't get home. She was a child. Cher didn't get home until well after curfew that night. And as a punishment, she was barred from seeing Warren Beatty the following night. And then Beatty called her house and negotiated her release to go on a date with him he negotiated her adoption so that he could keep fucking her yeah listen it's it's not ted nugent but it's close (laughs) vivian lee uh who was in splendor in the grass but she she shared the screen with him in the romans the roman spring of mr stone where Beatty played an italian gigolo opposite vivian lee who was in gone with the wind and she was 24 years older than he was they hooked up and it's possible that their their affair was invented to publicize the film. Um, at the time, the pattern was about to be established that if you were a woman starring opposite Warren Beatty in a movie, like you had to be romantically linked to him in some way. All right, let's speed it up. Hold Leslie- on, no. wait, what? That sounds like the worst kind of coercion, blackmail, yeah, bullshit. It, it, I mean, it was like the Hollywood system, like like the rumor tabloid mill right every co-star that he ever had was like had to fuck him or else i don't i don't think i mean i think like in the papers you know had to be linked to him in the papers didn't like literally have to fuck him but maybe he fucked a lot of people all right let's let's speed this up leslie karen mamie van doren who described him as a very wet kisser quote he drools a lot he has such active glands Julie Christie, Faye Dunaway, his Bonnie and Clyde co-star, who's the one that uh, read La La Land instead of Moonlight on at the Oscars with him. Oh my god, yeah! Bridget Oof, Bardot, I forgot about that. Carly Simon, and Joni Mitchell. It's rumored that Warren Beatty, he, his initial motive behind romancing Joni Mitchell was to get back at Carly Simon for You're So Vain. 
How does Joni feel about that? Not great because Joni and Carly were rivals and they were both vying for the love of James Taylor. Oh my goodness. Britt Eklund said, quote, he could handle a woman as smoothly as operating an elevator. Julie Carney, Goldie Hawn, whose daughter sings You're So Vain and and How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, said he was so handsome that I didn't know if my eyes would burn inside of me if I looked up at him. Michelle Phillips from The Mamas and the Papas, Candace Bergen, Murphy Brown herself, said he did things like show up unannounced at the airport just to hold my hand during a flight. She had been been nervous about taking a plane alone. Of course, he had to turn around and fly right back, but it was sweet that he was willing to drop everything just to escort me across the country. Kate Jackson, one of the original Troy's Angels, Melanie Griffith, Raquel Welsh, Iman, David Bowie's second wife, Mary Tyler Moore, and Diane Keaton at the same time because they lived in the same apartment complex, Diana Ross, Connie Chung, Diane Sawyer, who apparently put him in the friend zone, Justine Bateman, who is 29 years younger than him. You don't say friend zone here. That, that's that's the quote, friend zone. Um, now that we're on video, you can see my air quotes. We're dismantling the friend zone. Uh, I don't know if that's her quote or the quote from this, from Groovy History, but even in the article, it's in quotes. Um, Justine Bateman, who's 29 years younger than him. Stephanie Seymour, who's 31 years younger than him. Elle McPherson, Caroline Alt, who are both Sports Illustrated models. Isabel Ajani, who's one of the most highly acclaimed French actresses of all time, who eventually married Daniel Day-Lewis. Barbara Streisand, Lillian Hellman, who was a playwright and movie writer who was 32 years older than Warren, Jackie Kennedy. It was rumored that Jacqueline Kennedy slept with Warren to get back at John F. Kennedy for philandering. And this is true. Carly Simon was at Jackie Kennedy's side when she died. Princess Margaret, which is another rumor. And lastly, but not leastly, Madonna. I just want to say that I'm delighted about this Jackie Kennedy bit because good fucking riddance. To Jackie Kennedy? To JFK. Oh, I thought you were like, I'm glad Jackie Kennedy's dead. No, I'm glad she got it on with the number one well-oiled machine of lovemaking while her husband was just fucking around with every twat that would open the door. Apparently so. And like he was, if if there was a, if there was a gold medal of fucking, Warren Beatty <laughs> would get it. It would have his name inscribed in it. Good for her. So... Warren Beatty and Madonna got together after he met her to chat about writing a song for the movie that he was about to direct, Dick Tracy. Have you seen Dick Tracy? Of course. Okay. So, I was obsessed with Madonna, remember? Sure. So you know that Madonna winds up in Dick Tracy. Yes. <laughs> That's so, the only reason I saw it. But they became super fascinated with each other because Madonna has had an obsession with like old Hollywood. And Warren has an obsession with, you know. The so. Day. Vaginas. Yeah. (laughs) There's like a weird story that's in the You Must Remember This episode where it's like he, uh, Beatty and Dustin Hoffman were on the set of Ishtar talking about like having to replace the director who had lost control of the movie. And Beatty just starts staring at like a PA and just like completely loses interest in talking and like the conversation he's talking about. Um, so Madonna did a companion album to Dick Tracy called I'm Breathless because the character that she plays in Dick Tracy is called Breathless Mahoney. And she wrote a song on this record called Hanky Panky. According to You Must Remember This, Madonna wrote this song about, quote, Warren's favorite sport, and she would brag in interviews about how much Warren loved spanking her. <laughs> so let's take a brief listen to the other song written about Warren Beatty. Like... 
I don't mean to be a hater. This song sucks. I hate this song. It's like horrible. I would have to agree with that. We don't always agree, but we do in this case. I can't get back from my sister. Before I get too cranky, you better like Hanky Panky. Nothing like a good spanky. Bad, right? Okay, so we can stop that. I was considering doing the whole episode on this. And when I listened to it again, I was like, the fuck is the worst? <laughs> so Warren and Madonna dated for a couple years during the production of Dick Tracy and during the production of Madonna's documentary, Truth or Dare. Incidentally, Truth or Dare was about the Blonde Ambition Tour, and they had some set pieces built around her role in Dick Tracy. But when the movie didn't do big enough business, they just like scrapped them. But Beatty actually shows up in Truth or Dare, and you really see their, like, age gap. Oh. Yeah. So this is this is a couple of Warren Beatty's scene, f- scenes from Truth or Dare. Okay, that's it, Freddy. You stink. Mm-hmm. You pussy, man. Get over here. What is with you? Mm. Can you believe I have to do this every night? Are you going to be nicer to me now, Warren? So Warren clearly does not want to be part of this documentary. What makes you say that? (laughs) He's also, like, just not very attractive. When he was young, he was pretty hot. Where are you going, Warren? Bring them back. Bring some people back, because I have to go home and go to sleep. I'm trying to turn Warren into a vegetarian. So I told him I wouldn't have his baby unless he was a vegetarian. Not! She's doing the not thing a lot. She's really trying to make not happen. The light's good here, don't worry. Yeah, I think it's good if you lie down. <laughs> That's Al Pacino. Hello, hi. Nice to meet you. Hello, how are you? Hi, nice to meet you. Oh, Los Angeles was hard that way. I mean, I've always found it a little weird to celebrities assume a friendship with you just because you're a celebrity, too. It can get kind of awkward. Warren, thanks you all for coming. So, yeah, Warren didn't really want to be a part of this documentary. In one scene in the documentary, Madonna declines to have a doctor examine her off camera. So she, so she like wants the doctor to examine her on, can't like on film, and Beatty comments that she doesn't want to live off camera, much less talk off camera. So like he was just like could not fathom how much she wanted to live her life in public, which mm-hmm. I think is like a real interesting generational divide of like, you know, Gen X and millennials versus like baby boomers. So there are a bunch of stories going. A bunch of stories about Warren Beatty going out like clubbing with Madonna and basically like not being able to hang because he was so tired and geriatric. Yeah, kind because he's old because he's like getting up there in age. Madonna is like famously very wild, um, and he, Madonna may have been like a romantic match for him, right? Like, like in terms of you can't. This is a one mountain that you can't summit um, because right after that. Warren met Annette Benning, who's 20 years younger than Warren, but the same age as Madonna, and the two fell in love. Okay. And she was a lot more chill or what? Yeah. Warren was born in 1937, and both Madonna and Annette were born in 58. 
so like 21 years in age gap so warren and annette met and met while they were working on the film bugsy i don't know that one it's like a biographical crime it's about like a like a gangster so it's like the adult basically the adult version of dick tracy right it's like a gangster movie 50s and she was gonna play the the female lead Beatty later recalled a meeting between the two of them just before filming started quote when i met annette over lunch for bugsy i felt immediately like this was going to change my life i remember losing interest in the garlic chicken i was eating within 20 seconds and the garlic chicken had been very good oh okay because of his Playboy ways and because of his previous experience dating his co-stars, Warren pulled Annette aside after their lunch and, and told her, quote, I want you to know that I will not be hitting on you during this movie. And Annette replied, I didn't ask. I want you to know I'm a very wet kisser and you're going to find out after jo- this movie. Joan ends. Fontaine said my <laughs> glance. That it was Jane Fonda. It was it it was it was neither of them. It was uh, the wet the wet kisser was Mamie Van Doren. Oh. It's like a fifties actor. So that's how Warren remembers the first time he met his future wife. Okay, can't keep it classy. I know. But what was Annette Benning's first impression? She recently opened up to People Magazine, remembering that it was clearly. It was clear that Beatty was incredibly intelligent. I just remember thinking, wow, this guy is so smart, so sharp, and funny, but more just articulate. She added that he was very talkative. He was very passionate about the movie he was about to make. He had a lot to say, and he was charming, for sure. And Beatty felt the same. He told Barry Levinson, who was working on the film, after the lunch meeting that he had with Annette Benning, that he was going to marry her. Wow. Yeah. All these stories of people that were like, I met them once, and then I said, we're going to get married. And it's like, I just feel like if someone said that to me today, I'd be like, and I'm never going to see you again because I'm freaked out. But that's like impressively weird for someone who slept with like 13,000 women. But maybe he said that to everyone. Yeah, he probably did. (laughs) He had that list (laughs) in his pocket. This time it just worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Although they both insist that they remain professional during the filming of Bugsy, Beatty eventually decided to ask his co-star to dinner toward the end of the movie, and less than a month after the premiere in December of 1991, Annette and Warren welcomed their first child. So the math is not great. I don't think he kept his end of the bargain. Yeah, two months later they tied the knot, and they've remained one of the most solid couples in Hollywood ever since. Happy ending, right? Wrong. Yeah. In <laughs> this is from Yahoo News. In November of 2022, a woman filed a lawsuit against Warren Beatty alleging that he coerced her into having sex with him in 1973 when she was 15 years old. Gross. Yeah, her name is Christina Charlotte Hirsch and she filed the lawsuit in the LA Superior Court. And the suit does not cite Warren Beatty by name, but identifies him as identifies okay. the person that coer- coerced the vain man. No, he <laughs> identifies the defendant as having been nominated for an Academy Award for his role as Clyde in Bonnie and Clyde, which is like a weird thing to say. That is very weird. Um, so Christina Hurst now lives in Louisiana, and she said that she met Beatty on a movie set, and he paid her undue attention. 
Uh, he commented on her looks, gave her his phone number. She alleges that Beatty called her numerous times in 1973 and invited her to the hotel where he was living, brought her on car rides. He would have been about 35 at the time. Oh. He off- it's Hold on to something. He offered to help her with her homework and commented to her several times about losing her virginity. According to the suit, the defendant uses position and status as an adult and a Hollywood movie star to coerce sexual contact from the plaintiff on multiple occasions, including oral sex, simulated sex, and finally sexual intercourse while she was a minor. And it says that she was initially thrilled by the attention because she believed she was in a romantic relationship with him. Um, Yikes on bikes. So she's seeking compensation for psychological mental emotional distress and she says that she has like complex ptsd uh because of it and issues with trust and control as one would yeah and so you know there's a reason i included that share story because i didn't want anyone to think like no warren wouldn't he could get any woman he wanted why would he i'm not i'm a hundred percent positive this happened the way she said it did and they always want them younger and younger. They always want them younger and younger because they want to test their limits or whatever. And, you know, complicated people are complicated. This guy has a fucking problem or had a problem or, you know, and I'm not defending him in any way. But, like, he he can at the same time be the guy who's told Annette Benning that he wants to marry her and they've been very happy for 30 years and also the guy that did this monstrous thing to this 15 year old you know and um, we have to be able to like hold both things in our head at the same time Bill and Hillary Bill and Hillary yeah I mean I, th- I th- and I think that a lot of a lot of the reason that we talk about like cancel culture or whatever which functionally doesn't exist is because people are very have this like binary in their head where like you're only capable of good or you're only capable of evil and we're all capable of both you know and you gotta manage that um don't have sex with children don't have sex with children don't groom young women hey why not why not not have sex with children just throwing that out there new year's resolution to all of you out in listener land do not have sex with children unless you yourself were a child like two 15 year olds going at it have fun be safe so back to carly we confirm carly confirmed something very specific not that the entire song is about warren but that the second verse is about warren you had me several years ago and i was still quite naive Mm -hmm. but everyone the 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 story the headline is the song is about warren right but Simon cleverly tucked in there that perhaps it's the plural form of you. Y'all are so vain, you probably think the song is about you. And that the first and third verse are about other people. So, we got one down. Let's figure out who the other two are. This is from Song Facts. Even in 1974, Carly told Modern Hi-Fi and Music that the song is about a lot of, quote, the song is about a lot of people. I mean, I can think of a lot of people. The actual examples I've used in the song are from my imagination, but the stimulus is directly from a couple of different sources. It's not just about one person in particular. This also goes back to, like, we love a binary, right? The song is about one thing or, you know. 
in 2008, in the 2008 interview to promote um, her album, This Kind of Love, she said, when I had the line, you're so vain, you probably think the song is about you, that was definitely about one person. And the rest of the descriptions basically came from my relationship with that person. So she's contradicting herself. Mm-hmm. Right? And Warren, in 2015, Carly was asked if Warren knew that the song was about him. She said, Warren thinks the whole song is about him. <laughs> in actuality, in 2007, Warren told the press let's be honest that song is about me oh okay and uh and in 83 carly said that Beatty called her and thanked her for the song thank you for my song thank you for my song you're so vain (laughs) i like it better actually if it's about multiple people i do too because y'all are so vain and i bet you all think the song is about you and they all do Right. And they all do. And it's like a funnier (laughs) troll that way. Yeah. So Carly wrote additional material on Janet Jackson's song, Son of a Gun. I bet you think the song is about you. Um, She wrote additional material? What do you mean by that? So uh, you'll see. So so Son of a Gun, I bet you think the song is about you, samples You're So Vain. And so she... Uh, wrote some liner notes she wrote some a little little extra she's like on the song singing okay so let's take a listen to that and then we'll talk a little bit about what she said in 2001 i've never heard the song before have you yeah such a romantic hero the way you dress and look yourself over it's no wonder you would ponder that image of your preening self in the mirror so that thing the preening self in the mirror i think is the additional thing that she wrote maybe questions specifically about this and she said the apricot scarf was worn by nick nick or mick nick with an n nulty yeah so this yeah this is the no the smoking <laughs> this is this is the the banging the gavel for identifying the subject of the first verse which is nick del banco nicholas del banco who was carly's ex-boyfriend and he was a novelist he wrote Spring and Fall, The Vagabonds, and The Name of Mercy, Small Rain. Nothing that I've never, nothing that I've ever really heard of before, but I guess he was like an aspiring novelist. And he was the one who had the apricot scarf and looked at himself in the mirror like he just got onto a yacht. Boom. First verse done. But we still, ha- we still have to figure out this Learjet thing, right? Verse three. Okay. So what first i want to back it up to clouds in my coffee right Cl- clowns in my coffee because a she loves that line 
she like in the re-record she says it like ten thousand times. But she stole it from Joni Mitchell, and everyone knows it. Did, really? No, but Joni had all that cloud stuff. So remember <laughs> that Joni wrote that looked at clouds from both sides now because she was on an airplane, right? It's about her. No, but <laughs> guess who was on an airplane when she wrote the clouds in my coffee thing? So she liked the phrase clouds in my coffee and used that phrase as an allusion to describe her dreams of having a relationship with the subject of the song. This is her quote. Quote, it came from an airplane flight that I took with Billy Murnit, who was my friend and piano player at the time. As I got my coffee, there were clouds outside of the window of the airplane and you could see the reflection of the cup of co- in the cup of coffee. Billy said to me, look. There are clouds in your coffee. Okay. Super so could, literal. Could it so, be Billy? But, but she was on an airplane with this guy. Mm-hmm. Could the third verse be about Billy Murnett? Well, as you keep correcting me, it never actually says that Carly is on the plane with him. <laughs> right? It's just that you flew up to Nova Scotia in, your, in a Learjet. Um, so, Glenn A. Walsh, who... <laughs> was an astronomical observatory coordinator at a planetarium lecturer for the Pittsburgh's for Pittsburgh's Boole Planetarium says there's actually another part of the Urso Vane mystery that few people are aware of. Most people think that most lyrics are simply creative. However, one lyric in the song is very curious. You flew your Learjet up to Nova Scotia to see the total eclipse of the sun. When I first heard the lyric in June of 72, I immediately knew what it meant. I'm sure that nearly any scientist who's heard this lyric in 1972 knew exactly to what it referred to. In fact, one day in the middle of June in 1972, a colleague and I were in the radio station when the record was played. And when that particular lyric was heard, he turned to me and said, that would be nice. I knew it meant that it would be nice to fly to Nova Scotia to see the eclipse next month. So there was a total eclipse of the sun on July 10th, 1972, and Nova Scotia would be one of the best places to observe this particular eclipse. Even though Carly Simon wrote this lyric in the past tense, she was writing about an event in the future. Mm. So this brings up several questions. Did she write the lyric in the past tense because she did not think that the record would be released until after the eclipse? Or did she not think it would become popular until after the eclipse? Did No, she just knew a story. I think so. I agree. He said he was going to do it. She this is the other This is the other theory. She did he the guy have a horse. <laughs> probably. This guy no, he had a horse cock. No. But Even in the future, cut that out. The lyric starts with your horse naturally won, right? And then yeah. you flew your jet up to Nova right. Scotia. Does that mean it was his horse or the horse he was betting on naturally won? Because I think like, it was the lucky. horse he was betting on. So th- did this guy tell her about the upcoming eclipse and his plans to see it? Or did she know about the eclipse herself? Or did some other friend tell her about it as she was writing the lyrics? And she knew this or guy would possibly fly? Or is she psychic? Did this guy actually fly to Nova Scotia to see the eclipse? Or did the release of this record actually make him decide not to fly to Nova Scotia to see the eclipse? And was that Kari Simon's purpose in writing the lyric? So this is like your Heisenberg's uncertainty principle questions. Or she had a dream that he was doing it. In the future. And then he did it because 
So the mystery continues with these questions. Keep going. And she didn't disclose the full story in her 2015 memoir. But a couple years after that. The full story of the Learjet or what? No, of the, of, of the three guys, right? Okay. We know the first verse is Nick. We know the second verse is Warren. We don't know who the third verse is. And while she didn't disclose the full story in her 2015 memoir, two years after that, she did unveil a secret fourth verse. My favorite. So, in 2017, she performed the new verse from home for BBC's BBC Four's classic albums. She said, this is a verse I haven't ever sung, and I wrote it a while ago on a pad, but it never made it into the song. So this is the secret fourth verse of You're So Vain. So this is a verse which I haven't ever sung, and I'm going to try to sing it for the first time. I wrote it on a pad a while ago, but it never made it into the song. And so, a friend of yours revealed to me that you love me all the time. Kept it secret from your wives. You believed it was no crime. A little victim-y. A little, yeah, a little victim-y. <laughs> and, like, and like, there's like some kind of love, right? I've tried to dismiss you. You can't quite go. But a friend of yours revealed to me that you loved me all the time. You kept it secret from your wives. You believed it wasn't a crime. Who does that sound like? Who called James Taylor the night before Mick Jagger, right? their wedding? So, yeah, so I think that this verse might be about Mick Jagger. <laughs> And who who said that you know he's like uh, been obsessed with her for years? I don't know. This might be back Mick Jagger. I think the third verse is about Chris Christopherson because he his daughter is named big Casey, dick. Big Dick Chris, <laughs> Big Dick Mick. Does um, Casey sound like Carly? That's I I looked for everybody's fucking daughters on Google, and that's the closest. David Geffen doesn't even have kids. Also, we're just this means we're believing the anonymous Big Dick source, which are we? Yeah. yeah, wouldn't you? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. This is from the LA Times. Carly said that she might share other names down the road uh, if she ever told the guys first. People Magazine asked her if she'd ever tell them directly. And she said, probably. If we were sitting over at dinner and I said, remember that time that you walked into the party <laughs> like you were walking on a yacht? She continued, I don't know if, uh, if I'll ever do it. I never thought I would admit that to that it was about more than one person. Oh. And for the youngsters who have made it this far and are scratching their heads as to why this is any kind of big deal. This is the LA Times still. Oh, I'm like, what, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't use the term youngsters. <laughs> and for the youngsters who have made it this far and are scratching their heads as to why this is any kind of big deal. Yes. People in 1973 really did care about this tune, even before Carly Simon performed it with Taylor Swift in 2013. Amazing. Honestly, only there were record players involved and in-person conversations. It's complicated. Fuck you, LA Times. Complicated. 
So, in 2013, Taylor Swift famously performed You're So Vain with Carly Simon. This is Taylor's quote. When I heard You're So Vain, I thought that it's the best song that has ever been written. That is the most direct way anyone has ever addressed a breakup. And she knows from breakup songs. It's amazing. So when Carly and Taylor performed the song afterwards backstage carly told taylor so the three people that have been told directly who the song is about dick ebersole of mtv of nbc sports howard stern and taylor swift and they're not telling i bet taylor told her cats i'm sure she, i'm sure she did so what are we going out on this week Lindsay? this week we're going out on you're so vain performed by kate hudson in the famed movie that made me want to be a magazine journalist, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. And for longer and weirder stuff, send us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. And uh, I think we're going to have a TikTok soon or something. But find us on TikTok and YouTube whenever you can. And tune in next week for a brand new episode when we talk about another famous coxman. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. So until next time, I'm Evie Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying. You killed our love fern. New comforter. And other girls dream that they'd be Ben's partner. They'd be Ben's partner. What you got in the box? Oh. It's a baby fern. Really? Oh, yeah? Just like our relationship. A helpless little baby in need of tender, loving care. Thank you. Thank you.